Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Ipswich Town is comedian writer Tony Cowards. Tony, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Sachin. Great, I'm yeah, very glad good. to hear. Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, we've just been having a <laughs> chat before we started recording, didn't we? We were both, um, we should say, we, uh, we're recording this at the very start of the Easter holidays. We've both got kids um knocking about the house um how many have you got um well there's three in the house um one's off at university um so he'll be coming back for a little bit soon as well yeah. there's three three actually literally banging around the house um, <laughs> yeah we're saying yeah the sort of the noise levels in our respective homes are going to sort of rise quite significantly over the next two weeks uh, i'm quite lucky i've only got one and she's nine and generally yeah. very well behaved so um not a huge problem but speaking about houses um that's a bit of a terrible link but i think it works uh you moved did you recently um I, no i've been living in loughborough in a couple of years now so yeah f- relatively recently but um yeah i was living in uh, swindon before but now i've moved up to the east midlands the last couple of years excellent very good very good um yeah, so we're going to have a really good chat about Ipswich, your your boyhood club, um, and um, I mean, fascinating history. And I actually didn't realise how kind of, I mean, we'll sort of come onto this in a way as well. I'm quite, I feel quite disconnected to Ipswich, not just the team, but also the area. But actually doing my research into this, I realised as well how kind of, how much I do know about them and how much actually my time watching football they've done some quite significant things for good and bad which we'll come on to so I think uh, a really interesting chat before we do that just want to talk about your your personal sort of situation really because as I said at the start you're a comedian and a writer uh, the past 12 months have been a very very tough time for comedians and live performers generally for obvious reasons obviously not being able to perform in front of crowds uh, we had Tony um, sorry Tom Crane the comedian on uh, this podcast last series episode seven seven of series one he was talking about how difficult it's been for him as a comedian working during the pandemic um so what, what what's it been like for you i know you're a gigging comedian you you, you know you're a live stand-up comedian how's it been for you is it has essentially all come to a grinding halt um yes unfortunately yeah almost overnight back in about obviously hmm. about a year ago now or just over a year ago march 2020 everything just um suddenly ground to an absolute halt so yeah it's been interesting i've been doing some online gigs and bits and pieces and obviously been trying to do some of the writing that i've put off for years and years and other bits and pieces uh but yeah i'm not gonna lie it's been quite a tough tough year really <laughs> yeah and i can imagine it's, i mean now things are slowly moving back to normal is is your sort of diary starting to fill up a bit other things on the horizon you, you can work towards aim towards yeah yeah, there's stuff coming back in now. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I've been lucky enough to have my jab and, and things seem to be moving on the, on that score, don't they? So, yeah, fingers crossed. It's all kind of moving in the right direction. Yeah. Didn't you also do one of the first ever online uh, stand-up gigs as well? 2011, no tickets required. I mean, obviously, during this period, a lot of comedians have been doing online gigs, but you, you were doing this, what, a decade ago, essentially. So it's not that new to you, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I was a um that that show was actually just that was just on twitter though that was just um all oh, right yeah i did an entire edinburgh show online as a series of tweets um so yeah that was that was quite an interesting experience so i spent i spent sort of money to to be in the edinburgh festival brochure and everything and i was and there was some computers in one of the venues where people could follow it mm. but i was actually still sat at home just doing the show from home 
So yeah, I was. I guess I was a bit of a trailblazer. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I know. Again, anecdotally, listening to, uh, hearing from comedians and in various formats over the last twelve months, they've said doing online gigs is really weird and and not ideal, obviously, because you can't see the audience, you can't feed off the energy that you get from a live audience. But uh, for you, perhaps, and I guess not. I mean, still weird, I guess, but not as bad, given you've had that experience before as well. But it, you must it must be desperate to get in front of a live crowd again. Yeah, I mean, nothing beats. Um, doing a gig in front of a live audience um, and the instant feedback and everything you get from those for good or bad <laughs> um, but no I've, I've found the online gigs I think a lot of comedians we were all a bit frightened about sort of new technology and the way it was going to be but I've found that the online gigs have been mostly mostly really good fun um, and like if you get the right audience and, and at least a few people are kind of unmuted and you can hear some of the reaction that's great and otherwise it's just I've done I've not done any real tv but I've done radio stuff and obviously it's similar to just being on radio and yeah I guess when stuff out there you don't really know what the reaction is but you kind of have to play a bit of a psychological trick on yourself and convince yourself that everyone's absolutely loving it yeah. and, uh, and fill in the laughter yourself <laughs> yeah yeah no that makes sense excellent very good very good okay well let's get on to let's get on to Ipswich then uh, the reason we're here talking today um we'll get We'll go back to why you support the club and your, and your first and your earliest memories shortly. But before we do, I think we should start in the modern day. Uh, and I have to ask you, Tony, were you one of the Ipswich fans who set fire to the club's training ground in February? <laughs> no, you can't pin that on me. <laughs> Not me, Gav. But poor old what Playford Road, where the is it the um, training ground? Yeah. I forget what it's called. Yeah, no, that was that was nothing to do with me. Yeah, well, I, I wonder. If it, the club's been so hard up in recent years. I wonder if it was an insurance job by the owners, maybe. Blimey, I don't know if I can keep that in. Uh, I'll have to check with the lawyers to make sure we can leave that line <laughs> in. Um, yeah, just to explain to people who don't know what we're talking about. Um, so I'm going to nick this from a, an article that was in the Daily Mail on the 15th of um, February 2021 uh, by a reporter I know well, Sammy Mockbell, very top guy, top reporter. So he wrote. Um, I just saw. I think this is the introduction to his piece about this incident. A group of disgruntled Ipswich fans upset the direction the club are headed under Paul Lambert, the manager at the time, threw flares into the club's training HQ, which the club say caught in a layer of mesh netting, causing some signage to catch a light. Local police have launched an inquiry. Now, I don't know where we are with that inquiry, but um, to kind of set the scene a bit, um, it's not been going very well for Ipswich uh, for a little while, actually. I mean, as of recording, uh, the team 11th in League One after 36 games, only two points off the playoffs, but definitely falling short of expectations. Um, they're expected to get promoted back into the championship pretty much at the first time of asking, having been relegated at the end of the 2018-29 season. But they finished 11th last season, uh, which was cut short after 36 games because of the pandemic. They're 11th again this season in League One. Uh, and also, so since the fire, Paul Lambert's left the club by mutual consent that happened on the 1st of March. But in truth, uh, he'd been at logheads with the owner, Marcus Evans, for some time over a lack of funds. He's also been at logheads with the supporters. The fire uh, followed a banner being put up the training ground last November from the Blue Action Supporters Group that read, cheers for the beers, but it's time at the bar, uh, which was in reference to Lambert occasionally laying on drinks for supporters and in protest over the team's form and style of play under him. He's subsequently been replaced by Paul Cook as manager. 
And also, the fans are pretty unhappy, I think, collectively with Marcus Evans, the owner. Uh, he's owned the club for 13 years. And I think that, I'll come on to Tony on this in a second. I believe there's a collective sense that it's all gone quite stagnant under his watch. Um, a colleague of mine at The Guardian, Nick Ames, who's a, who's a big Ipswich fan himself, wrote an article in December in which he described Ipswich as a ghost club at the moment, and as it has been for most of Evans's reign, uh, due to a lack of investment by the chairman, as well as his own lack of relationship with the fans from being a very distant and absentee owner. Um, yeah, all in all then, Tony, pretty grim time for your club at the moment. Yeah, thanks Thanks for reminding me of all that. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd better set the scene so people know where Ipswich are at the moment. Is it, um, is it as yeah. if lockdown hasn't been depressing enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to actually sort of ask you, has, um, I don't know how regularly you get to Portman Road before before um, the shutters went down in terms of fans being able to go to live football. But I wonder if actually being in lockdown has made things easier or in fact a bit harder given you're not able to boo the players in in person and get that frustration <laughs> off your chest. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, unfortunately, because um, doing stand-up comedy, I tend to be working weekends. So it's become, over the years, increasingly difficult to get down to Portman Road. And I haven't actually lived in yeah. Suffolk since I was a little little lad. So it's always been a travel. I sometimes get to more away games than home games. But um, yeah, I think probably, I mean, we've seen it a little bit perhaps with Newcastle as well and, and other teams where they seem to perhaps be doing slightly, well, maybe that's not a good example, but, you know, slightly better without the fans there or, mm. or there's slightly less pressure. Although Ipswich fans are kind of a funny breed, we we kind of takes quite a lot to get Ipswich fans either excited or or really passionate the other way, kind of upset. But, um, so uh, yeah, I don't I don't don't know whether the lack of fans is good or bad thing for them at the moment. Yeah, your whole thing about stagnation just rings so true. We've seen to since uh, we had our great time in the Premier League and then got relegated, and it's and we had a little bit of excitement under sort of um, Mick McCarthy and Joe Royal after that. But playoffs and things, but yeah, last ten years at least, really, it seems to have stagnated and just don't seem to be really going anywhere. Well, well, we did get relegated, so I suppose <laughs> <laughs> get to League One. Down. Yeah, and of course, it always it always irks us even more because when Norwich get promoted and then yeah. they seem to be doing they're doing all right this season, aren't they? I haven't dread. I haven't dared look at the championship table, but they look like they're going to get promoted again, don't they? I think they're top, yeah. I think they're running away with it. Yeah, they have obviously got promoted yeah. a couple of years ago, then got relegated from the Premier League last season, but look like they're going to go straight back up under under Daniel Farker. I mean, you said you, you referenced Newcastle there. Is, is Marcus Evans then very much Ipswich's Mike Ashley, that sort of distant absentee owner who who's just not putting any money into the club, who's not properly investing? Um, yeah, I guess that's the, the the view of him to a certain extent. Um, I don't know how true that is or whatever. Like, obviously, he he did put quite a lot of money in at the beginning of his reign, and I think he he wrote off. We were massively in debt, so a lot of our debt got written off. So I suppose there's a certain amount to perhaps be thankful of. But that was a long time ago now, and I think the gratitude of Ipswich fans has kind of run out a bit because we just seem to be. There's quite a few clubs, isn't there, that seem to be nowadays like you don't know really what their ambitions are or where they're going or what, what they're kind of for. I mean, uh, like with Newcastle fans always seem to want, say they want really exciting football, which they don't seem to get. I suppose if you're not getting exciting football, but you were getting some sort of success, that would be one yeah. thing. But if you're not playing very good football and not getting any success at all, it's kind of um, quite depressing, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I always think there's a lot of bullshit around that. The whole, all we, you know, all we just want is to be entertaining. Well, if you, if you, if, if the team's playing great football and the players are giving a shit, but you're losing every week, you'll want that yeah. manager sacked as well. I think ultimately, what all <laughs> yeah. fans want is their team to win, and it doesn't really matter how you do it. Um, but if you play crap, you better win. Whereas, I guess, yeah. if you're at least yeah, entertaining, 
yeah, at least if you're playing entertaining football, you've got a bit of grace. But um, but yeah, um, I just thought it's funny you saying so. It takes a lot of Ipswich fans to get excited, and then um, they've, <laughs> we're just talking about them setting fire to the training ground. So <laughs> maybe yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you you I think it was before we started recording, but you were saying you didn't know much about Suffolk because it's kind of a bit of a sleepy, hidden yeah. away yeah. part of the country. But like us, that sort of minor fire at the at the training ground that would have been a major crime in Suffolk. That would have been the like top priority crime for the last decade i think that's yeah. not going to sleep well, I, I live in beckenham in southeast london if someone set fire to beckenham fc i don't know if there is a beckenham fc uh, but i think that would be the major story here as well i mean it's incredible setting fire to training ground what a yeah. what an incident um, as i said the police investigate i don't know where we are without they might catch the uh, might be norwich fans just trying to stir some trouble they, <laughs> they may also be behind it maybe the great twist in this in this crime um yeah i just Again, sticking with the with the modern day just for a little while before we before we reminisce and talk about happier times. I mean, I said Paul Cook replaced Paul Lambert's manager. He's had uh, trying to count do my maths here. So he's had nine games so far. Sorry, he's had six games so far. Apologies. Uh, he's won one, drawn two, and lost three. Uh, he came from Wigan as well. We should say. Um, I don't know if you've seen much of Ipswich under his reign. He's obviously six games is not a lot, but how, how do you sort of assess how he's doing so far? I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't really seen any of it. I've seen the results, and it mm. doesn't seem like he's had an instant impact, does it? Well, definitely not. No, one win in six. <laughs> Which is at the moment, it seems to be the the premium requirement for an Ipswich manager seems to be that they they're called Paul. <laughs> like if anyone's called Paul and wants to have a go, then uh, that seems to be the uh, the requirement at the moment. Yeah, well, McCartney should be on standby. He might be, he might be <laughs> yeah. drawn into just. Uh, yeah, you might not, you might not win any games under him, but uh, you'll have a great old time with Paul McCartney as your manager. Um, and just finally on the modern era because it is grim and depressing. We do want to move off um, from it um, as quickly as possible. But just ask you one final thing on it. Um, there is talk of a, a takeover. A US-led consortium looking to buy Marcus Evans' share for thirty million pounds. Uh, I guess that's something you're backing i don't know where we are with it. it seems to have gone a bit quiet it was like it was on the cards about a yeah, week ago a i big, think um, big thing about yeah. it wasn't it a while back yeah um it's one of those things isn't it i suppose i'm torn because as a, as a as a fan you want your club to be successful and but obviously you look at some of the takeovers and you look at like i mean to be a manchester city fan must be amazing in one way because of the football they're playing the players they have and mm. the success but I, they do seem to have become a bit of a sort of plastic club, don't they? A bit of a kind of, you know, modern, shiny football, petrodollar, corporate representation. Sorry, Man City fans, I'm going to get hate mail now. But, so you know, you're going to get a ton of abuse. You're not, I, I know from personal experience, you dare not <laughs> criticise Man City. Their fans will come at you, but, uh, but don't worry. But yeah, We've so, all experienced it, so you're just joining a, a quite a large club now, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose, like, the, it would be great if this money came in and we became successful, but you do sort of wonder what you, what you also lose a little bit. You lose a little bit, perhaps. Of, perhaps I'm just being a bit romantic and you know, old school fan. You lose a bit of the soul of the club a little bit. And yeah, but obviously, with it being a US takeover as well, that they haven't always gone brilliantly in the past, have they? <laughs> no, we're very mixed bag. I mean, I'm a Liverpool fan. Ours, ours has gone really well under under uh, Fenway Sports Group, John Henry. But then you look at um, Aston yeah. Villa. Come on, they Randy Lerner, didn't they? They didn't go particularly well. Arsenal's is not going particularly well. I understand Gronky, and yeah, can be a mixed bag. I guess it can be a mixed bag with any with any owner, can even even a local one as well. But you talking about that sort of that sort of having an owner who sort of cares and that romant, romantic link to an owner. I mean, you very, you know, Ipswich very much had that, didn't they? Was it the Cobbled family owned the club for, for decades? Yeah, the and they were, and they, were yeah, yeah, and they were sort of very. They were a local, really important local family. Was it the brothers John and Patrick created the Tolly Cobble Brewery as well? So you did have genuine local owners who cared for the club and and sort of. Yeah. Um, 
looked after they, the club for many, many years, didn't they? Yeah, they also seem to be those perfect sort of owners that, that were there and put some money into the mm. club, but left the manager to get on with it. I always remember Bobby Robson had a very good relationship with them because he always said they just let him get on with managing the, the, the football team and that side of it, mm. and weren't interfering at all. So I yeah. suppose that's the kind of dream, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you want the investment and you want them to also be hands-off as well, don't you? Um, right, let's go back to the very start then. Simple question. Why is Tony Coward an Ipswich Town fan? Well, fundamentally, I was I was born in Ipswich and I grew up around Ipswich. I lived in a place called Stowmarket, or as Suffolk people say, Stowmarket, Stowmarket, when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, basically, Ipswich were, were a really good team when I was growing up. I was born in 73, so kind of Bobby Robson era. Mm. Um, and everything. And my dad, my dad, and, and most of my family are all West Ham fans. Um, but my dad had gone to live. Uh, my mum and dad had gone to live in in uh, Stowmarket, where there was a big um, ICI factory, where, which was where my dad worked. And um, my dad encouraged me to support the local team rather than be a West Ham fan. Because West Ham actually weren't so good. Then Ipswich were a better team than West Ham. And he was always worried that I'd get abuse at school and stuff if I supported a. West Ham instead of Ipswich. Yeah. Um, so he encouraged me to be an Ipswich fan um, and then kind of took me to Portman Road a few times and, you know, caught the bug and everything. Ironically, though, uh, when I was about 10, 11, my mum and dad um, split up, unfortunately, got divorced and my mum moved back to the East End of London. So um, his theory of making me an Ipswich fan so I wouldn't get picked on at school <laughs> backfired completely because then I went to a school where everyone was either West Ham <laughs> oh, or Arsenal or Spurs. So um, I was the only Ipswich fan. In yeah, you literally yeah. you'd have been the only Ipswich fan if in a school in East London. That would have yeah, almost definitely. certainly been the case. Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> so, but I do thank my dad for that for encouraging me to support the local teams because yeah. it has it's, it's ups and downs. But I quite I find it I think it's quite I find it quite sort of interesting being a fan of a of a slightly less fashionable club that no one really knows that much about. So have you got quite a soft spot for West Ham? Then you must have. I've got a love-hate relationship with West Ham. <laughs> really, really have. Sorry, I'm going to upset West Ham fans. Now. <laughs> Go for um, it. <laughs> I kind of... It's funny because West Ham are probably the, the team I've seen the most matches of uh, apart from Ipswich because yeah. uh, I've been to Upton Park as it was um, a lot, not just to see Ipswich there, but I've seen plenty of West Ham games as well. Um, so I kind of quite like them doing well, but not too well. Um, and then... I, I always quite liked West Ham and then Ipswich had two seasons where we played them in the playoffs um, around about 2005, 2006, I think. And I went to all the matches and we lost um, lost both of them, both the playoff semis against West Ham. And so they, they really went out of my favour then. <laughs> um, I wasn't happy about that, especially as we one of them, we, uh, we got a really good result at Upton Park and thought we'd done the hard work and then they beat us 2-0 at Portman Road which was was gutting. Um, so, yeah, I'd say real love-hate relationship with West Ham. <laughs> Fair enough. And for a long time as well, Ipswich weren't, and Norwich were, were not in the same leagues. Ipswich and West Ham were, and so it, it almost became a local derby for a while, Ipswich-West Ham, because it was, it's funny how isolated Ipswich are as a team. We're, even Norwich, our closest rivals, are 40 miles away. Mm. So we don't have, like if you support a London club or a club in the northwest, you've got a multitude of clubs, haven't you? Mm. All within a short distance. Yeah. Whereas Ipswich, you've got Norwich, Southend and West Ham, about the only, Colchester, I suppose, yeah, about the only clubs that are really that close to us. Well, that, that touches on what I was going to ask you next. I mean, you, you referenced it earlier as well. Um, 
Yeah, so Ipswich is one of those places, and Suffolk generally, which I have very little kind of, certainly first-hand experience of, but also knowledge of. I mean, I've only been to Ipswich once in my entire life, and that was to cover an Ipswich game. It was in February 2008. You beat Blackpool 2-1 at Portman Road. I was, I was doing it. I was covering the game for work. Jim Magilton was the manager. And you had a Macedonian midfielder at the time called Velis Sumilkovsky. I think that's how I pronounce it well. Yeah. Sumilkovsky. Yeah, I, I remember him. I don't think I've ever managed to say his name. Yeah, yeah. I've just butchered it yeah. there, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. I'll try, yeah, I'll try one more time. Velis <laughs> Sumilkovsky, I think that's right. And he was he opened a scoring on that day, and I think it was his debut for the club. But yeah, it's just one of those areas. I mean, Suff- I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong. So Ipswich is a town in Suffolk, which is a county, which is located in East Anglia, which is a region. Um, as I said, one of those areas I have very little knowledge of. There's a guy at work, um, my boss in a way, Marcus Christensen, who's the football editor at The Guardian. He absolutely loves Suffolk. He goes there, feels like he goes there every other week. He has, I think, a cottage there. Or he takes his family yep. there. It sounds like a lovely part of the world. Um, and as yeah, I said, I, I feel very disconnected to it. I've, I've only been there once, as I said, to Ipswich. And that was literally to cover a game. Got a train into Ipswich, went to Portman Road, covered the game and got a taxi back to the station, went home. So I'm just sort of, if you can, give me a sense of the area and also how important and how central the football club Ipswich is to, 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 to Ipswich itself and to Suffolk in general. Well, I mean, Suffolk is, is a very rural community mostly kind of farming community you know, there's all the old stereotypes about it being full of the yokels with a straw <laughs> hanging out of the mouth and yeah. which, is, which is partly true <laughs> untrue um yeah i mean it's got beautiful if most people if they know it they'll have probably been on holiday perhaps to the sort of some of the nice coastal places albrough and southwold and around there i mean it's increasingly becoming a kind of bit of a commuter place for london because you can be in london in just over an hour on the train to liverpool street so it is a bit sort of commuter belt but yeah it's kind of i don't know what suffolk's really famous i mean lovejoy was set there if you if you're old enough to remember uh, what that lovejoy. takes me back yeah yeah, yeah. sunday afternoons yeah. in the 90s takes yeah. me right back I mean, yeah recently that recently the detectorists i don't know if you ever saw Mackenzie crook's excellent yeah, yeah i'm aware of it yeah i haven't seen it very good yeah, yeah that was kind of set on the essex suffolk border so that kind of reminded me a lot of my childhood of wandering okay. around in fields and stuff but yeah it's a, it's a beautiful part of the world yeah that not a lot of people really know about as i say ipswich is the only professional i'm hopefully i'm not going to upset anyone else here but i think as far as i'm aware only professional football club in the county mm. obviously norwich are local rivals but they're quite a long way away uh, suffolk famously doesn't have a motorway in it it's like there's no there's no motorway really? in the county. <laughs> really i didn't know that so, wow. yeah the, a, the a12 is about the best road and that's fairly rubbish um <laughs> So, yeah, it's kind of like, it's so odd. I find it quite odd, really, that it's so close to London and yet it's so kind of sort of out of the way. There's no, yeah. mostly there's no reason for people to go to Suffolk unless you're going somewhere in Suffolk. No one really passes through. I suppose unless you go to Felixstowe to get a ferry or something. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those places, isn't it, that you don't you don't pass through because it's out of the way. It's in, the, you know, the east of the east of England. And it does, although if you look on a map, if you're from London like I am, if you look on a map, it doesn't look especially far, but... It sort of is a little bit. I remember I went, I've, I've covered a few games at Carrow Road for work as well and get the train from like Liverpool Street Station and you think, you think the journey's going to be quite quick, but actually takes absolutely ages. And yeah, yeah, as I said, it's just, you know, there's loads of parts of England and Britain I've been to and I have a sense of, but I've always sort of felt very kind of clueless and disconnected from, from the east of England, East Anglia, Suffolk, Norfolk as well. But it, equally, as you've sort of touched on, it's 
sounds like a really nice part of the world. So let's go back to your first game. Now, uh, when I get guests to come on this podcast, ask them what the first match was that they remember watching their team playing. And it's usually relatively standard. It's a league game. It ended sort of 2-1 or whatever, uh, which is absolutely fine. No problem. No problem to that at all. Your first Ipswich game, in terms of the first game you remember, and um, perhaps the first game you ever went to, very, very unique because of the nature of it, but also <laughs> more so the scoreline. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about what your first ever Ipswich game was? Yeah, well, the first game I ever went to was uh, was a, a friendly, a testimonial match, which was, uh, as I said before, I lived in Stowmarket and it was Stowmarket Town against Ipswich in 1980. So it was like peak Bobby Robson mm. era. And he took the the uh, actual sort of full first. I think it was played. I don't think it was played outside of the season either. I think it was played. Well, I think you, I sent you the date. Was it yeah, March? You said, you said it, no, you said it was April 1980. Yeah, so, I mean, that's really yeah. in, in the sort of the meat of the, uh, of, yeah, not the meat, so, but in the real sort of home straight, the season, the really crucial part yeah, of, so, of any season. So, yeah. So it was an extra fixture. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In, yeah. in a season where we would have been going for like leagues and cups. and um, But yeah, Bobby Robson took a full sort of first 11 there. Uh, and Ipswich won fifteen nil, <laughs> um, which I also just the uh, fifteen, <laughs> yeah, which I also now look back and find hilarious because you would usually, if a big team visits a small team, you think that they might bang in three or four and then sort of take it a bit easy, you know, bring on some youth team players or something. But no, Bobby Robson's Ipswich obviously were were pumped up that season and uh, we're just like, no, it may be a testimonial, <laughs> <laughs> but we're we're going to pump in as many goals as we could. It's like um, it's like the it's like the the dad sketch in the fast show, isn't it? You yeah, sort of expect him to take it easy, like but they're just absolutely hammering the, the inferior yeah. opponent. It's I've, I've looked, ruthless. I've looked it up since to try and find out. I don't think I've managed to find out who actually scored the goals, but I guess everyone did. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, exactly, yeah. I wonder if Paul Cooper even got a goal. But um, <laughs> but I'd love to know the times of the goals as well. I'd love to know if they like. <laughs> pumped them all in in the first half really quickly yeah. and then knocked off in the second half or whether they just kept going for the full 90. Yeah, it's absolutely, yeah, as I said, it's absolutely ruthless. I mean, it was held at the Cricket Meadow, which I guess is, is Stowmarket Town's ground. And it was a testimonial for Michael Rivers and Robin Bunn, who were Stowmarket's longest serving players. And as you say, you think, you know, it's Stowmarket's day, you know, just to, yeah. to make it a bit easy. But 50 nil, it was absolutely astonishing. And I guess, I guess partly that's because because that's down to the timing of the game. I mean, if you'd had them on a on a sleepy Sunday in July during pre-season, you know, they might not have had a lot of energy in their legs. Obviously, the match sharpness wouldn't have been there. But you got them, as I said, in April of that season, the 79-80 season, where the well into match, you know, the sharp the match sharpness is at its peak. Um, yeah. The competitive juices are properly flowing because obviously, as you said, they're going for trophies. Um, so, yeah, you, you just clearly caught them at a bad time, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think, I don't know. I, obviously, I was, I was uh, what would I have been, seven, not even seven, six, just my, my birthday's in May, so it would have been just before my seventh birthday. Um, so I don't really have memories of the game itself, but I, I, I kind of vaguely remember that everyone was really there to see Ipswich because they were obviously mm. superstars at the time. So I think the crowd probably loved it. And um, yeah. I don't know I don't know what the players thought, especially <laughs> the guy whose testimony it was. Uh, Michael Ribbon, the Robin yeah. Bunn, yeah. But yeah, I remember it being a bit of a sort of carnival and everyone going a bit like seeing all these. Because I can't remember, it was just before, because I think Escape to Victory, the film, was released a year after. And um, okay. like people like Russell Osman and, and John Walk for a little while were, were mm. literal film stars, movie stars. So seeing them at this little parochial ground that I, th- I think that's Stowmarket's old ground as well. I don't think they play there anymore. So, um, yeah, I think it would have been 
sort of like it's a bit like watching Tom Hanks walk out of the <laughs> theatre, pokey little theatre. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I was, well, you said you were six at the time. Yeah, I sort of checked that myself uh, via Wikipedia. I think you were six. You were a month away from turning seven. So, yeah, I guess yeah, your memories are, would have been quite uh, quite weak in terms of uh, off that day. But I, can you remember sort of getting quite close to the place? Because I can imagine it's quite a tight little ground. You probably were able to stand quite close to the edge of the pitch. Does does any of that sort of yeah, come to mind? Lots of people were getting sort of um, autographs and, and, and photos with the players and stuff. I do vaguely, yeah, have a, a recollection that, yeah, it was all pretty sort of mixed in. And mm-hmm. yeah, they weren't, it wasn't like they were kept away from all the fans and stuff. So. I don't know if I got any because I did used to collect autographs for a bit, and I used to hang around outside the sort of entrance at Portman Road where the players used to come out. But I don't remember if I got any that that day. I think it was probably a bit. I was probably a bit too young. It was pre um, me getting aut- autographs and stuff. Yeah, would you gone with your dad? Yeah, yeah, my dad yeah. was taken in there. Yeah, yeah mm. my dad, uh, despite being a West Ham fan, my dad was very good. He he took me to a lot of Ipswich matches when I was not old enough to go on my own. Excellent. Well, you mentioned him there. Uh, yeah, Bobby Robson was the manager and his period as Ipswich manager is undoubtedly the, the golden period in Ipswich's history. So he was manager between 1969 and 1982. In that time, Ipswich had eight top four finishes in the in the old first division, including two top two finishes. You also won two trophies, the Texaco Cup in 1973. No idea what that is. I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> and, and also the UEFA Cup in 1981. And that really was the season, wasn't it? At 1980-81, you finished runners-up to Aston Villa in the first division and you collected that first and still own the European trophy um, in in Ipswich's history. You beat AZ Alkmaar 5-4 in what was then a two-legged UEFA Cup final. Uh, 3-0 at Portman Road in the first leg. You lost 4-2 at the Olympic Stadium Amsterdam in the second leg, but you've done enough to to win the trophy. And yeah, just... um, you, I should say as well, you also got to the semi-finals of the FA Cup that year as well. Um, I mean, is that just undisputedly the greatest season in Ipswich's history and the greatest team in Ipswich's history? I think so. I think so. I mean, Ipswich did win the, the league title before I was born in, I think, 60-61. People old enough might, and that was under Alf Ramsey. So that was an incredible team as well. So people might argue with that. But but I think, I don't, yeah, I think most people, 80-90% of Ipswich fans would say that Bobby Robson team of that year was was the greatest sort of we were, so we I mean we were like you've said it there pretty much we were going for like a treble for and right until the very end of the season the league uh, the FA Cup and the UEFA Cup I personally I remember as um, as a young lad being absolutely devastated that we lost the semi-final to Manchester City in the FA Cup that was almost bigger to me than than missing out on the league league title to Aston Villa so yeah it was an amazing season I think I think it's one of those, like, it's almost inconceivable now, but I think we only played, like, something like 15 or 16 players all season. If there's one slight complaint about Bobby Robson, was that he didn't, when we were on top, whether he could have bought a player or two just to have increased our sort of squad slightly that season because we were really were running on empty by the end. Mm-hmm. If you look at Ipswich's results, I think, I can't remember, we didn't win many matches in about the last 10 matches in the league season. We were sort of way favourites we should have won and then we we lost quite a few in the running where just the legs went and kind of we were hanging on almost to to win any trophies so the UEFA Cup like you say we we steamrolled AZ Alkmaar in the first leg but even then our legs went a little bit in this the, the second leg and we sort of just about hang, hung on to it in the end I mean, you only finished four points behind Aston Villa, who, as I said, won the league that season so yeah, I mean, if you hadn't had the FA Cup run for instance yeah. you probably would have got over the line wouldn't you and won the title that season 
Yeah, I think it all came down to the last last couple of matches. I think we lost we lost a match against uh, Middlesbrough, who was struggling at the bottom that we shouldn't have lost. And I think Villa won a match, and it all kind of swung on the penultimate match, or maybe even the last day of the season. Maybe Villa had one left. It was all a bit odd though in those days, isn't it? Because the season didn't necessarily all finish. All the teams didn't necessarily finish on the same day. If there was a backlog of fixtures and stuff, so I, I can't remember how it all played out. But I just remember, yeah, we just missed out on the league title. Obviously lost in the semi-final of the FA Cup, but luckily got the UEFA Cup. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been a travesty for that team not to get a trophy that season. Yeah, we should say for any younger people listening, and um, and maybe that's patronising him, I don't know. But um, winning the UEFA Cup in 1981, that it was a massive deal. I mean, it's a big deal now to win the Europa League, I guess. But the UEFA Cup in those days was, was a huge trophy because only one team went into the, into the, well, the old European Cup, the champions, and everybody else... You know, second to fourth was it, or second to third? Perhaps went into the UEFA Cup, and so in terms of depth, it was it was a much tougher, stronger tournament than the European Cup. Yeah. I remember, you know, supporting Liverpool in the nineties when the UEFA Cup was was going as well, and and you know, it was a serious tournament to win. You wanted to win the European Cup, but winning the UEFA Cup meant a lot. And so for Ipswich to win it that season and it to be your first European trophy, I mean, it must it just yeah, it's an incredible achievement, isn't it? It shouldn't be underplayed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the UEFA Cup, like you say, in those days, often had the team that that won the title that year because obviously um AZ Alkmaar who we played in the final they won the Eredivisie that okay. season I think yeah you had a lot of teams that obviously might have finished second or third the season before but mm. but they were on the up so you were playing the kind of champions elect as mm. it were so yeah because as you say only the only the champions of the league went into the Euro- European Cup so it was often a lot of the up-and-coming teams that were in the UEFA Cup so I think you're right I think the strength of it was was pretty strong back then yeah, I said you won the first leg at Portman Road. It was a two-legged final in the UEFA Cup. And you won the first leg 3-0, um, resounding victory. And in crucial victory as well, given you lost the second leg 4-2. Uh, were you able to go to that to that game at Portman Road? Must have been some night for those fans who were there. No, I, I unfortunately, I went to very few games. That, I, I don't know if I went to any really that season. Like it was Sort of that season and the season after that I started going with my dad. Because mm-hmm. without wanting to get too sort of um, negative about it, but the, those... The eighties weren't a great time. The early eighties for for um, wasn't as family friendly. Football wasn't quite yeah, as family no, friendly as it was in the days and stuff. Yeah, so my yeah, dad absolutely. was always a bit reluctant to take me to too many matches. But I do remember listening to um, to that match on the um, on. I'm so old that I think it would. I don't think it. It wasn't even Radio Five back then. I think it was. They used to do the sport on Radio Two, whatever. So, but I remember listening to it and and just being. Um, I think I may have even because it was obviously a midweek match as well. I may have been allowed to stay up late to listen and ner- us nervously listen to us nervously hanging on. As the two teams come out for this final, the atmosphere sounds festive, and that's almost entirely down to the fans of Ipswich Town, because the Ipswich players, when they went on the pitch before the match, were really amazed at how many people have made the trip from Suffolk. In fact, there are seven and a half thousand Ipswich supporters here inside the Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam. And what a sight they're making with their blue and white balloons and flags. AZ in red shirts and white shorts get this second leg started. They're three goals behind, bear in mind, playing from right to left, and they've switched the match to this Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam because their own ground in Alkmaar only holds about 18,000 people. Way by Arndt, Tyson! Oh, what a start for Ipswich! They scored! 
and the Dutchman Franz Tyson puts it into a tremendous position here because AZ now have got to score five to win the cup. Well, the corner curled in and watch for Franz Tyson number four on the volley. The goalkeeper never moved. Three minutes gone. Tyson for Ipswich. Number nine, Metos. Number five, Hovenkamp. Plays it in for Johnny Metos. A great run by the sweeper. Cooper made him delay. He's turned it back and there's a goal. Bertel. The equaliser. Beltsel pulling right this time, finding Petters. Johnny Metos! 2-1 on the night to AZ, and Johnny Metos, the sweeper, is having a stormer. Mariners flicking it on, Johnny Walk's in there! Johnny Walk! John Walk equals Alcafini's record of 14 goals in Europe. The corner taken by Arnold Muren. Paul Mariner up at the near post, flicked the ball back. And as John Walk pulled away from those two defenders, he scored with a volley which final touch but couldn't keep out. And that means now that if we have got two away goals, so the Dutch have got to score four again to win on the night by six goals to two to take the aggregate and therefore the cup. This is Arns. Forward for Johnny Metoff again. Jonker is in there. Paul! for AZ 3-2 on the night that's Yonka with the shot what a terrific drive Terry Butcher trapped in Cooper's line of flight but look where the shot went right in the corner Brilliantly delivered. And the Dutch. Now, I think there may have been something thrown on the pitch there. The Dutch now make it 4-2 on the night and require two more. And we're going into time being added on for stoppages. And in goes the corner and another header coming in. And Jonker again posing problems. On. Johnny Metot again. They'll be glad to see the back of him, which I can tell you. Cooper's made two splendid saves. The flag is up for offside against Brazil, and Ipswich win the Youth Cup on an aggregate of five goals to four. 7,000 and more fans from Suffolk are able now to celebrate at the end of this dramatic season for their club. Nick Mills has just played his 667th senior match for Ipswich Town and his reward for that unstinting service is the UFA Cup. The reward for his team's enduring efforts this season. They chased three trophies, they missed out on two, but they finished up with one. I think, although people say we we hang on, I think because of yeah because of away goals, I think we actually had a two goal kind of margin, didn't we? Although it was five four, I think AZ would have had to have scored two more. So.
Yeah, they would have done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, yeah, in a way, it was kind of comfortable in the end because of those two away goals you got made absolutely crucial. I mean, would there have been an open top bus parade? Is that something that oh, happened yeah, and you would have gone to? Yeah, there was a big open top yeah. bus parade down into Ipswich at the um, the butter market or the cattle market. I forget what the area is called. But yeah, there's a lot of famous pictures of Ipswich, um, the players and Bobby Robson holding the trophy on the, on the um, balcony of the town hall and stuff and everyone packed in. Is that something you would have gone to? No, I don't think I was at that either, unfortunately, because it's oh. a bit too young. It might have even been a, it would have been a school day, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, no, I remember seeing it was all obviously over the Anglian news and all the papers, all the local papers, and everything it was a big thing. Yeah, and I can imagine. Um, yeah, as you say, it was it was a great Ipswich team, full of full of legendary players for the club, and, and probably the two most. I don't know if they're, I wouldn't say necessarily the best, but certainly stand out and probably without a doubt the most exotic at the time were, of course, Arnold Muren and Frank Tyson, uh, Dutch midfielders. Muren arrived at, uh, to the club in 1978 before leaving to join Manchester United in 1982. Tyson joined in 79 and he eventually left to Nottingham Forest in 1983. Um, yeah, as I said, Dutch midfielders signing grip switch in the late 70s, a very must have been a remarkable thing to happen because at that time, foreign footballers coming to English football was a rarity in, in a way it absolutely isn't now. But not just that, they, they were really good as well, weren't they? I mean, just how good were they and also how transformative were they for that team? They, they were absolutely superb. Um, I mean, Ipswich had obviously been a good side. We'd won the FA Cup in 78 and we got knocked out in the semi-finals in 75 and we were kind of there or thereabouts in the league. I think we'd had a couple of top six finishes, but they were kind of the icing on the cake really that came in I think mm. we were previous to them coming we if I when I watch sort of old videos we were a little bit on the direct side before that we were I wouldn't say we were a long ball team but we were a little bit kind of sort of you know classic British wingers and big tall striker sort of and then they came in and, and we became much more of a more continental team playing the ball through the middle and I mean what, Franz Tyson was like an excellent dribbler and Muren was like could pick a pass like no one else. So we had kind of this beautiful combination of the two of them there. And, and they were just like, I mean, Franz Tyson had the classic kind of moustache. So he looked a bit sort of slightly Dutch soft porn star. I was going to say, yeah, the porn starlet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were just like, I mean, like you say, to have like people that watch football nowadays probably would be amazed. But like, I think they were about the first foreigners in, in, in yeah. English football or first foreign players to become bigger. I mean, there was Vilia and Ardiles at, at Tottenham, the Argentinians. I don't think there was many other sort of people from outside the sort of British Isles and Republic of Ireland that played in the league at the time. So it was so very exotic. No, absolutely, yeah. It wasn't just that they were overseas players. They were they were really good, weren't they? I mean, yeah. did, so would they play together in centre midfield? Were they a partnership in midfield? Um, yeah, they played played together. I, I always look back on that team and I can never quite work out what the sort of formation was because you had John Walk... As well, yeah, John Walk, who's a very scored lots of goals, but I, I wonder if he was actually nominally the kind of holding midfielder, really, as, mm. as would be described nowadays. But he got forward and scored lots of goals. You had that Arnold Murin and Franz Tyson, and then kind of we sort of played a four-three-three. So we had Alan Brazil, Paul Mariner, and Eric Gates up front. But Eric Gates was kind of a small kind of he wasn't really a winger, but he would have dropped back into midfield, I guess, a bit more. So so yeah, they 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 were obviously a brilliant combination. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I, Franz Tyson, bizarrely, I don't think got many caps for Holland, but Arnold Muren played a fair bit and famously played the pass, got the assist for Van Basten's amazing goal in the 18th yeah. European Championship. Well, I don't know if you can call that an assist when <laughs> given the pass and then someone volleys it in from 30 yards out. <laughs> it's not exactly yeah. a play. But, um, he contributed to the goal. That might be, that might be fairer. 
No, I mean, it is, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I obviously way before my time, I was born in 81 myself, actually, so I was born that yeah. season. But um, I've heard so many stories of how good that team is and how, you know, it, was, so it wasn't that just that they were successful. They played really good football and, yeah. and Murin and Tyson were key to that. And a couple of other players uh, from that team I want to talk about. You, you touched on one there, John Walk. The other is Terry Butcher. Uh, they both made your all-time Ipswich 11. Uh, so to explain to anyone who hasn't listened to this podcast before, uh, when, when I get guests to come on, I ask them to pick an all-time 11 based on the best 11 players they've seen play for their team during their time supporting that team. And Tony's been kind enough to pick an all-time Ipswich 11, uh, which we'll come on to later. But uh, yeah, Terry Butcher and John Walker both in that team. And I'm just sort of curious about why they're in there because as you've said, you were, you were, you were very young in, in 80, 81. So you don't, I'm guessing you don't have particularly strong memories of watching them play during that season and during that era. So I'm wondering, is Butcher in more because actually he played for Ipswich until 1986. So he's more in for the his sort of latter years of the club. And John Walker is there actually more so for his two other spells at the club because he left to join Liverpool in 84, but then came back and played for the club between 88 and 90. And then again, between 91 and 97. So is he in for those sort of spells and Butcher in for his latter years of the club? Yeah, ba- basically, I, th- I thought when I was trying to pick my team, I wanted to pick players that I had real sort of proper memories of, and yeah. not just kind of nostalgic. So obviously, it would have been very easy just to pick almost all of the players from 1980-81, but I don't really remember most of them playing. I remember Terry Butcher, after um, Bobby Robson had gone to manage England in 82, a lot of the players all started to get sold and left because we had a, we just built a new stand, the Pioneer stand, and a, a lot of them were sold to help pay for that. But Terry Butcher stayed with us until we actually got relegated in 86. And I just remember him being like proper stalwart centre-back, mm. like tying the defence together all the time. So he's in there. Plus plus also, obviously, as, as an England fan, as well as an Ipswich fan, kind of 1990 and Italia 90 and mm. all that sort of thing. Him, yeah. uh, You know, the famous, was it against... I can't remember who it was against. I was going to say Sweden, perhaps. You know, the famous picture of him with the bandaged head. And, yeah. Uh, well, that was in. Was that in? I think that was in qualifying for ninety, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 The blood pouring out of his head. Yeah. Iconic yeah, image. For all those reasons, sort of England captain, uh, sort of bit of a hero really at the time. Mm. So I had to put in uh, Terry Butcher and John Morg, as you, you said. Not just he was wonderful, an amazing player, and then went off to Liverpool. But yeah, he came back again twice in the second spell. I think he became like an integral part of the team that then got promoted and then played for us again in the, the Premier League. And kind of he, he as his career went on, he sort of moved further back. So he started off as a midfielder and quite an attacking midfielder, and then sort of ended up as a grizzled old centre back. Uh, that was always quite funny because he had absolutely no no pace towards the end <laughs> but he was one of those players that kind of could could quite often see what was going to happen and you know made the interceptions and whenever you know the first yard in his head kind of thing cliches like that but um but yeah and he obviously he had a cracking tash as well i don't know if i picked some of the players to, <laughs> some of my favorite players just for facial hair uh, and was uh, again was another one of the ipswich players that was a star of uh, escape to victory indeed he was yeah yeah he claimed to play for manchester united in that which was slightly disappointing but um but yeah i, I don't think uh, if you ask uh, 100 Ipswich fans to pick their all-time 11. I would expect at least 99, if not all 100, to have John Walker in there. You can't really. Not yeah. yeah, well, not just yeah, yeah, not just a great tash and not just a, a really good footballer, but yes, yeah, spanned uh, three different eras in a way. Yeah, the early 80s, the, the late 80s, and then the mid-90s as well. I mean, I remember watching him play for Ipswich in the mid-90s. And yeah, by that time, uh, he was getting on a bit, it's fair to say. But yeah, no, I mean, incredible service to the club to play for them in three different spells is fantastic. Um, we've got to talk about Bobby Robson. Uh, 
I mean, he's probably remembered most strongly and fondly for his time with England, obviously Italia 90, uh, you know, magical tournament semi-finals and all that. And he's particularly associated with Newcastle because of his Geordie roots. But I mean, it shouldn't be forgotten, should it? How important and successful he was at Ipswich and how much he's loved at the club as well. I mean, he's got a statue outside Portman Road, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. Yeah. He was just unbelievable, really. I watched, uh, there was a documentary film made a year or two ago, a couple of years ago, um, More Than a Manager. And if anyone loves football, I'd say even if you don't really like football that much, but you just want to watch a really interesting documentary like about a great man, that is a brilliant documentary all about Bobby Robson and his time at Ipswich, Barcelona and Newcastle and England. It's, it's quite quite rare, isn't it, now that I think it'd be hard to find anyone that knew Bobby Robson or played against him or played with him, under him, uh, that would have much of a bad word to say about him, which I think is quite unusual in football, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Most people like you get Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho. They kind of polarise opinion quite a lot. You either absolutely love them or hate them kind of thing. And I think Bobby Robson was just uni- almost universally loved. Well, I think it shows you the power of his uh, charisma and warmth that both Paul Gascoigne and Jose Mourinho adore him. Yeah, two mm. polar opposite human beings and they both love him. And it just shows you, as you, as you said, there's universal appeal as a human mm. being. I mean, I, I never had the privilege of meeting Bobby Robson, but just watching him from afar, growing up as a kid and then, and then working as a journalist, just, he just came across as such a wonderful human being. And obviously a super a talented manager as well I mean he came across as his sort of kindly loving grandfather but he must have had a real ruthless and smart streak to him given his success as at Ipswich with England and all the European teams he managed as well Porto PSV Barcelona as well so yeah extraordinary figure in the history of English and European football Let's fast forward then a little bit. So you said there yourself, Ipswich were relegated to the second division in 1986. You were then promoted as champions back to the top flight in 1992, which was ahead of the first ever Premier League season. Uh, yeah. you, finished, you finished 16th that season. You were then relegated again in 1995, finishing bottom. And that was a season off the 9-0 defeat to Manchester United, <laughs> Old Trafford. Sorry, I had to bring it up, Tony. I do yeah. apologise. Uh, it happened on the 4th of March, 1995. The biggest or the heaviest defeat in the Premier League era up until Southampton match. Southampton been doing their best to take that record. Yeah, well, they they (laughs) took it once and then they took it twice, didn't they? Lost 9-0 to Leicester last season. They lost to, well, Manchester United as well at Old Trafford uh, earlier this season. Well, they they, they had a guy sent off there, didn't they? So I I kind of think we still hold the title, really. Yeah. Are you quite proud of that record then? Ipswich fans are like, damn it, someone else has lost 9-0. It's it's all a badge of honour in a way. I don't want to lose it until someone lets in (laughs) really. I want to start someone gets the double figures. Fair enough. Yeah, I've got to ask you, I mean, what are your memories of that of that day? I remember it being on a Saturday afternoon, three o'clock things. I think I remember being at home, sort of following it on sort of teletext or something. Yeah. Well, um, enough, I was at that. I was at that match. You were at the game. You're Old Trafford, really? Yeah, oh. I was at Old Trafford because I, I was actually at university in Salford at the time. Ah, okay. Or, or I might have just left actually the year before, but I, I knew Manchester quite well, and I've been to quite. I've been to Old Trafford quite a few times, um, and I got a ticket for that match. Yeah, I went there. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> I got quite an amusing story. I think it's amusing now, but at the time it was what was it ninety four ninety five season? Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, it was the fourth of March nineteen ninety five. Yeah, so quite oh, sort of late on in the ninety four ninety five season. And, um, and I just got my. Um, this is how old I am. I just got my first ever mobile phone. You know, the classic old Nokia. And one of the things that the uh, the, t- the company I was with, the uh, phone company, they w- they did um, text alert services. You could sign up for text alert services for your football team. So I'd done that. So I was at the match and um, 
I was getting goal alerts about 30 <laughs> seconds after every goal went in. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, we'd concede a goal, and then 30 seconds later, my phone would go off. I'd look at it, and it'd tell me who'd just scored the goal that I'd just seen in front of me. So not only did we lose 9-0, but it, and at those times, texts weren't free. They cost 12 and a half pence. So every goal cost me 12 and a half pence as well. I think the whole match cost me an extra, like, pound fifty in tech. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, my God. That, so, yeah, that... It was not a good day, really. No, I mean, what, what's what's it like being in the, in the away end when your team's getting battered nine nil? I mean, uh, is everyone just sort of laughing at one stage? Is is yeah. are there some people there who actually want it to go to ten just because that's such a mad, unique score that we all sort of dream of seeing at some stage I in our life? I don't think anyone wanted it to get <laughs> to ten, but it, I think when you when you're watching football, I don't know if anyone else, like, I don't know, have you ever seen a, your team get absolutely sort of mauled? Because I think I think once it gets to three or four. You kind of go, oh, well, or maybe yeah. five, three or four, you've perhaps got a chance of getting something back in. But once it gets to five and six, you kind of like, oh, well, it's gone from being annoying and, and upsetting to just being ludicrous then, isn't it? Yeah. I remember we were just all, I think the Man United fans were singing, we want 10 at one point, and, and Ipswich was just singing, we want a corner. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. think we'd attack like, the whole match really I think we'd it was one of those classic games it wasn't like we were unlucky to lose 9-0 either it could have easily no. I think bizarrely Craig Forrest poor guy who let in nine that day and I think he let in seven when he played for West Ham as well he had a couple of games where he let in he actually had a really good game and like kept out lots because it could have easily been like about 14 or 15 <laughs> What was it like supporting Ipswich in the 90s because I mean it was very up and down literally uh, you, you were sort of bobbing up between the divisions but you did have some sort of decent players as well especially on attacking point of view I mean two names that really stick in my mind and they're, they're both also in your all-time 11 which we'll come on to later as I said Jason Dezel and Chris Kawamia I mean my memories which were quite an attractive attacking side in the 90s obviously couldn't defend particularly well but um, play some good stuff yeah we, we we had our spells we had we had a little bit sort of a spell in the mid-90s where we went bit stodgy and, and and lost all our attacking kind of flow uh-huh. but yeah at the beginning of the 90s and the late 90s we were quite an attacking exciting side yeah and when we when we won promotion and got into that first Premier League sort of season um yeah Chris Kawami was banging in the goals up front and Jason Zell was a really skillful kind of midfielder who kind of um was one of those kind of I think it's classic cliche isn't it but you'd describe him as mercurial because there'd be games mm. where you just wonder what the heck he was doing whether he'd been involved the whole match but then he'd pop up and do something a bit magical and score a great goal think so yeah they they were cracking they were sort of because Dizel was a, a midfielder really but occasionally sort of played up front because he was quite tall as a sort of almost target man alongside Cormier, who was a, who was just sort of typical shorter speedy little um speed merchant kind of up front so yeah, they were they were a fun uh, attacking duo. I loved loved watching those two. Dizel's son plays for the club now, doesn't he? Yeah, Andre Dizel. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, still still there. I think kicking around. He he scored on his on his debut. Mm. And funnily enough, Jason Dizel held the record certainly for Ipswich. I don't know if it was a league record still, but it was the youngest scorer when he was sixteen and so, so many days. And then his um, son, I think, actually beat his record when he played on his debut oh, and wow. scored yeah. when he was only sixteen as well. So. Um, so yeah, a bit of a family connection, and, and Jason Dizel was a, an Ipswich lad as well. So it's good to have some some local a local lad in my all time eleven. Yeah, absolutely. I said we'll come on to that team team later. Um, before we do, a few more things to talk about, and and one of them uh, we absolutely have to talk about another great season Ipswich's history. Maybe not to the levels of eighty eighty one, but 
uh, not a million miles off, perhaps. It was a 2000-2001 season. Um, so firstly, I mean, it was a great season for Ipswich. But it was a season they got back into the Premier League and did remarkably well. Um, and I mean, what was remarkable in the way was how you got there. So um, it was via a really exciting playoff final, first division playoff final, 4-2 win versus Barnsley. Uh, at the old Wembley uh, you came from 1-0 down to lead 3-1 uh, it was a un- really unfortunate Richard Wright own goal that put Barnsley ahead and it was then cancelled out by goals from Tony Mowbray Richard Naylor and Marcus Stewart Barnsley then made it 3-2 via Craig Hignett penalty on 78 minutes before Martin Royce sealed it which which late on um, yeah I remember watching that game on TV really really exciting game I remember it be- looking really hot at Wembley as well that day it looked like a really roasting May afternoon at Wembley in, in May 2000 uh, were you at the game what are your memories of it? I was I was at the ground. <laughs> Go on. I couldn't, I couldn't get a ticket, unfortunately. It was, oh no, I couldn't get a ticket. So I was I was literally outside Wembley uh, trying to see if I could get get a ticket. Yeah. I actually managed to blag my way into Wembley before the match and was stood uh, at the tunnel where the players come out, um, looking at the pitch about fifteen minutes before the the game. So I'd actually got inside, but kind of was milling around, didn't really know what to do because I didn't know. I didn't have a seat to go and take. I should have just disappeared into the concourse, really, thinking about it uh, now. And eventually, like, a security guard came up to me and asked me what I was doing and wanted my ticket and everything. Unfortunately, I didn't have one. So I got, I got, I literally got thrown out of the ground just before kickoff. Oh, no. Uh, How did you get in? At the time, I used to work for a company that did um, sound and lighting equipment for conferences and various things. So I, I claimed I was working there and, oh, yeah. and the, the crew doing the, um, the pre-match show. So I'd kind of blagged my kind of way. <laughs> I sort of co- I was wearing all my Ipswich stuff, so I'd covered it, kind of covered it all yeah. up, and, and then managed to blag in. Yeah, I just remember being stood at the entrance with um, Ipswich. You got a mascot called Bluey, who's like the uh, the Suffolk Punch kind of horse. Um, so I remember sort of standing there, and the mascots there, and I think uh, Barnsley have got like I don't know, are they the Tykes or something? They, they are the Tykes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know what a Tyke is? Is that thing? Oh, I'm not sure. They had like a red <laughs> mascot. Thing. Yeah. I sort of stood there and I obviously looked a bit guilty and a bit because I was completely not where I shouldn't be yeah. and yeah so uh, so yeah then I spent the most of the match outside with a load of other Ipswich fans just sitting on the steps of the old Wembley listening to it and trying to work and someone had a radio and we were listening to the match so that was quite incredible and then the turnstile operators sort of took pity on us and let a load of us in with about five minutes to go so I saw I saw the very end and I saw the presentation of the trophy to this day, I'm kind of a bit gutted that I didn't see that match. I wasn't actually inside the ground. Yeah. I was kind of there. But it's a bit like being invited, sort of, or not being invited to a party and just being outside the party and can hear everyone having an amazing time, but not quite being there yourself. So yeah. I have kind of bittersweet memories of that day. I can imagine, yeah. I mean, you should have... Could you, could you just not kept the lie up when you stood by the, uh, by the tunnel and just said, yeah, yeah, no, I'm working here, mate, when that steward walked up to you? Yeah, I think I'd kind of tried to, but... Uh, but I'd lost my confidence a bit by then. <laughs> when yeah. I think about it now, I think, I think I should have just done a runner. I should have just run into the concourse yeah. and sort of hidden at the burger bar for a little while and then just come out. Well, just run, into, just run into the stands and just sort of, you know, just fall in the middle of some Ipswich fans and yeah, some of them will take pity on you and say, yeah, don't worry, mate, stand with us. It'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. Oh, that's a, yeah, as you say, a very, very bittersweet story. Um, but yeah, no, you won. It was a really exciting game. And then you got into the Premier League or the Premiership, as it was called then, your first time back since uh, since being relegated in 95. And it was a remarkable season for Ipswich. As I said, newly promoted, probably our ambition going into that season, I'm guessing, was was just to stay up, um, to, yeah. to, to, to maintain your top flight status. But instead of that, 
You finished fifth with 66 points. You were just two points off Leeds who finished fourth and just three points off Liverpool who finished third and third then got into the Champions League. So you were you were basically a win away from getting into the Champions League. You also got to the semi-finals of the League Cup. You lost to Birmingham. Uh, you also actually won the same number of games as Liverpool and Leeds that season, uh, 20 games. And you beat both Leeds and Liverpool at their own grounds. You beat Leeds 2-1 at Ellen Road, Liverpool 1-0 at Anfield. I remember the Liverpool game. I think just before Christmas 2000, if I remember well. I mean, what made that team so good? I mean, they're managed by George Burley. And in particular, what the hell was going on with Marcus Stewart that season? I mean, he was the <laughs> second highest scorer in the division that season with 19 goals. Only Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank got more with 23. And he outscored Thierry Henry with 17 and Michael Owen with 16 goals. I mean, that team was just just remarkable, wasn't it? I mean, com- completely exceeded expectations. Yeah, I mean, they'd been, they'd been a really good team in getting promoted. Obviously, we went through the playoffs as though Again, a bit sort of typical with Ipswich. We had a bit of a late season collapse. We should have really got automatic promotion, if I remember rightly. Uh, Marcus Stewart had come in as a, as a, we'd bought him in, I don't know if we had transfer windows at the time or whatever, but we'd bought him sort of mid-season and he'd come in, he'd been banging in goals for Huddersfield, who were also in the promotion chase. And uh, he came in and immediately started banging in goals in the in the league for us to get us up into the sort of playoff spots and everything. Scored some important goals. I don't, I don't quite know what the magic formula was for why we did quite so well. I think we didn't really bring in too many players. We didn't. So a lot of it was a team that had got promoted. I think we brought in John Scales in defence and maybe a couple of other players. But um, yeah, I don't think we bought too many players. So we kept the team. I suppose the team spirit sort of was great. Marcus Stewart just flourished in that season yeah. in the Premier League and just was just unbelievable. That was kind of an accident in a way because our, our actual main striker really was a guy called David Johnson then who I loved and thought was a brilliant striker but for some reason it just didn't happen for him in the Premier League. I remember the first few games he was the first choice striker and he, he like hit the post, hit the bar, had a couple of like really good saves and just couldn't seem to get that first goal to get him going. And then Marcus Stewart came in and just hit the ground running. One of our early games, I think our second or third game was against Manchester United and uh, we got a 1-1 draw at Portman Road and it was an incredible match. And I just think that was kind of the moment where the fans and the team sort of realised they could actually do all right in this league. We could live, I think Manchester United were probably reigning champions, I think, at the time. They were, yeah. yeah. And they walked it that season as well. They were, again, they were Really yeah. good team that season, yeah. And I remember that game against them. They had a midfield. I think their midfield that day was Beckham, Skulls, Keane and Giggs. Yeah, one of the all-time best midfields mm. in English football, but probably, you know, world football. And um, we play, we outplayed him in midfield. Jim Magilton was actually the man of the match and he absolutely bossed the midfield. And I think, I think from that moment, like the confidence just grew and they knew they could stay... Because like you say, staying in that division was the plan at the start. I think, ask any Ipswich fan, if we'd have finished 17th and stayed up, we'd have been perfectly mm. happy with that. Um, but yeah, the confidence, you know, confidence is a funny thing in football, isn't it? And once it starts to grow and you start getting the result. And yeah, we went into that final match. I think the final match of the season, if if results had gone our way, we could have ended up in the Champions League. Yeah, no, I remember it well. As, as, as a Liverpool fan, it was, yeah, it felt like it was between us and Leeds for that for that final yeah, uh, Champions needed- League spot. Yeah, I think it's in the running, yeah. Odd, I think it needed a slightly odd set of circumstances, but we were still in with a chance in the final game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it felt like it was essentially a two-horse race between Liverpool and Leeds on the final day. But it was, which I remember being in the mix, and you thought, if yeah, if things go, I think if Liverpool and Leeds both lost and you won by a certain number of goals, you would have got third. And yeah, I just remember. I mean, I remember that season so well. I was twenty um, when it, when the two thousand two thousand one season was was going on, and Marcus Stewart, yeah, it just seemed to score every single week. Like you'd be watching telly or watching Soccer Saturday or checking Teletext as it was back in the day, and you'd be like. My God, he scored again. 
they might have another one here. He's free, he's Marcus Stewart. Oh, he's on now, surely a debut goal for him, it is. Here's Trapper. Now Stewart. Oh yes, Marcus Stewart. Now Ipswich on the move, useful, and a chance for Marcus Stewart. Stewart scores for Ipswich. Why does it? Oh, we've got some subtlety as well as strength. A great ball. Naylor's away again here now, and he's got him behind Morgan. Good initial touch and support coming now in the form of Clapham. Stewart! 3-1! Great ball for Clapham. Even better back to Stewart. Oh, he turns to defend it sweetly. Round the goalkeeper, and scores a magnificent goal at the top. Were you able to get to many games at that time? I mean, you left university, obviously, by that stage you were yeah, working, I presume. Yeah I, went to, yeah, I went to quite a lot of games that season. Mm. I'm really glad that I got to see a lot of the games. I was at the Manchester United game I mentioned. Um, yeah. I'd have to go through like my, my tickets or whatever. I don't know which match. I don't know if I saw us lose that season. I might have been lucky enough to not. I saw sort of every mm. game was either a draw or a win. I don't remember seeing us lose. Yeah, no, remarkable season. Yeah, did did extremely well. And you didn't, you didn't qualify for the Champions League, but you did qualify for the UEFA Cup. Uh, and the following season, then you were playing European football again, and it wasn't a great season. You were relegated at the end of the 2001-2002 season. We'll come on to the UEFA Cup more specifically in a second, because it was a, a remarkable game in in regards to that run, uh, which you probably know what I'm talking about. We'll come on to that in a second. But just broadly, um, I mean, yeah, quite a thumping fall from Grayson. Was that, was that a combination of having to manage the league in a UEFA Cup run, and also more, more generally having to live up to greater expectations? Yeah, I think it was a combination of things. I mean, people often say that, yeah, it was qualifying for the UEFA Cup, the extra games, and that. I, I don't entirely buy into that because we. But I think we had to. We bought quite a few players because we needed a bigger squad, obviously, to compete in Europe as well. Um, and we lost a couple of players. Richard Wright uh, went to Arsenal, and I think losing him as the goalkeeper because he'd had a fantastic season. And we got a, an Italian guy, Matteo Sereni, in goal. A lot of Ipswich fans seem to um, look back on him as, with great respect, but I was, I was never convinced, actually, as a, as a goalkeeper. I think that was a big loss. And and it was one of those seasons where the season before, we had a series of good results early on, and that gave us lots of momentum to carry on. The second season almost seemed to be the reverse. We struggled really 
for a long time at the beginning and never seemed to really get going. And by the time we got a bit of momentum, I think we did at one point win seven out of eight games, I think, around about Christmas or just after Christmas. But by then it had kind of was almost too late. We were really struggling down towards the bottom and... And, you know, these, these, like I said before, confidence is a, a funny thing, isn't it? Once it's there, it's easy mm. to keep getting good results. But once it's gone, it's hard to get it back again. I, I said that in that UEFA Cup run, you went out in the third round to Inter Milan. Uh, you lost 4 to an aggregate, but you won the first leg 1-0 at Portman Road. And this yeah. was against an Inter team that contained the likes of Javier Zanetti, Clarence Seydorf and Christian Vieri. Although I don't think Vieri actually played in the game at Portman Road, maybe injured or suspended. Uh, I, mean, I mean, that must have been some night at Portman Road. Were, were, you, were you lucky enough to be there? Yeah, I was at that one as well. Wow. Yeah, I've been very lucky to be at some absolute classic games. Yeah, that was an amazing game. Yeah, I think if 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 you have to be absolutely honest about it, Inter didn't field their strongest team. I'm, I'm pretty sure Zanetti still played. I think Zanetti a, played at Portman Road. I think Sadoff yeah. did as well, but Vieri didn't, know. Yeah, Vieri didn't play, but he played in the second leg, unfortunately, yeah. with a hat-trick. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. About that. And Ronaldo came on, the original. Oh, Ronaldo. wow. What, at Portman Road? Did Ronaldo no, come no, on? In, in the second leg. Oh, at uh, San Siro, yeah. So, um, yeah, it probably wasn't the, the best Inter side, but even so, uh, we'd been not having a great season, as you can imagine. But then we absolutely, I mean, how it really, it was one of those matches, how it only ended 1-0. We'd been all over in the whole match and the, the, the goal was scored quite late on. I think it was only about 10 minutes to go when Alan Armstrong headed it in. Um, but yeah, the atmosphere that night was just incredible. I, I was at, too young to go to any of the big European nights when Ipswich were under sort of Bobby Robson. So to me, that was my kind of big European night under the floodlights, you know, midweek. Mm. The atmosphere is incredible and we won. And it's obviously against a team that, that may not perhaps be one of the giants now, but they kind of, Italian football in the 90s and the early 2000s was the kind of pinnacle. Yeah, really. absolutely. But to beat yeah. one of the Italian giants at home was just, you know, fantasy land really. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about the atmosphere that night. I mean, from I know from my one trip to Portman Road in uh, in two thousand eight when I saw Velis Sumolkowski uh, make his debut for the club in that game against Blackpool. Portman Road is a is a really tight, very neat, tight ground. Um, yeah. You know, you feel like it's quite the stands are quite close to the to the to the pitch, and uh, so I imagine that the atmosphere must have really rever- rever- reverberated that night. If I can give, put my teeth in, and yeah, it must yeah. Have, as you say, it must have been an incredible atmosphere. The noise must have been incredible. Yeah, I think, like I said to at the beginning, it takes quite a lot to get Ipswich fans kind of going. We we got a rep, bit of a reputation for being fairly reserved most of the time. Mm. But once it does get going, yeah, in that ground, Portman Road is a really lovely, lovely ground. I mean, it's it not is, the biggest, yeah. but it's, I, I do like love our ground. I think it's, mm. it's good. once the atmosphere does generate, like you say, it does get kind of boxed in. And, um, and a midweek, you know, and it's such cliche, isn't it? But a midweek game under the floodlights always seems to be something special, especially if it's a European game. Um, yeah, and the atmosphere that night was just, I just remember it being just electric. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, I mean, as you said as well, you sadly lost the second leg at the San Siro, 4-1. Christine Verri got a hat-trick. And you were at the UEFA Cup. And as the end of that season, got relegated from the Premier League. And uh, you've not been back since. And obviously in League One now, um, I just wonder how sort of Ipswich fans view their club status. I mean, do, given that success in the 80s um, and, and the fact, you know, you're in the Premier League in the 90s, then you had that amazing season in 2000, 2001. Do Ipswich fans broadly view their club as a top flight club? Is that the ambition to get back in the Premier League? Is that where you feel you should be? Yeah, I think um, <laughs> it seems weird, doesn't it, saying that? Because we haven't been in the top league for, what, 20 years now? Yeah. Um, but yeah, for a long time, I think Ipswich fans... Uh, saw ourselves as a top flight club purely based really on our kind of 
sort of the 80s because we were obviously in the top league for the whole of the 80s mm. uh, and then we bounced around a little bit obviously in the 90s but we kind of yeah well, I think we kind of had this idea that we were really a top flight club or certainly a yo-yo club that would bounce up and down the top two divisions and now now we kind of we'd love to be a yo-yo club now <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I can imagine love, yeah love to be yeah because it's been down and then even further down yeah. I, I think going down to league one was a real kind of real surprise for Ipswich fans because we'd we'd been in the championship for I think we were the team that had been in there the longest amount of time six 16 17 years in the championship so yeah and I think there's still we have to, we have to be a bit careful of not having delusions of grandeur I think because we still if you're of a certain age you still look at our club and think oh we're a big we're not a big club but a bigish club mm. that should be but then I think English football is probably filled with those sort of clubs of a, a sort of medium sort of size that think they probably should be in the, the Premier League or up near the, the top division. Yeah, we think Nottingham Forest haven't been in a top flight for, yeah, for God knows how long. Yeah, Wednesday, Absolutely, uh, yeah. England, all sorts of clubs. Brilliant. Right, let's get on to this all-time eleven. So uh, we were joking about this before we start recording. You've uh, provided a, a slightly intricate team. Most people who, who when they pick their all-time elevens for this podcast go pretty straightforward, sort of to quote Mike Bassett, four four fucking two or four three three, which is absolutely fine, by the way. You've um, yours was a little bit more intricate. So on your behalf, Tony, I've. Uh, constructed it into a 4-2-2-2 formation if that's all right with you so uh, let's go through it then uh, so as I said to say again this is Tony Coward's all-time Ipswich 11 based on players he's seen during his time uh, supporting the club and yeah they're in a 4-2-2-2 formation so in goal Richard Wright back four uh, Fabian Wilness, Terry Butcher, Titus Bramble and Herman Ryderson Two men in midfield then are Jim Magilton and John Walk the two attacking midfielders ahead of them are Jason Dazelle and Martin Reuser and the two attackers are, of course, Marcus Stewart and Chris Kawamia. Um, One observation from my point of view, Tony, and then I'll let you speak about the team a little bit, is there are seven players from the 2000-2001 squad, which I guess just shows you how yeah. good that squad was and how much they mean to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I probably could have picked that entire team in some yeah. ways. But, um, but yeah, I mean, some of them were a bit difficult. Like, I, I'm... Paul Cooper was obviously the goalkeeper when I first started watching, and the, and I do have vague memories memories of Paul Cooper. So it was a very tough decision to leave Paul Cooper out and put Richard Wright in goal. But yes, yeah, that two thousand two thousand one season really standing out for me. I think a lot of people will probably be very surprised at the name Titus Bramble being in there because it became a bit of a a joke figure. Well, I, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, well, this is sorry. I was going to come on to this. Yeah. Um, he's one of those sort of strange figures in my time watching football because I know he was massively highly rated when he got into the Ipswich team in the sort of late nineties. Was it early noughties? He then moved to Newcastle for quite a big money. I yeah. think he may have been capped by England as well. But he's one of those players. Every time I watched him, he just looked really odd and awkward. I just couldn't get into my head that he was a good footballer. But he's yeah. What? So why? So how good was he for Ipswich, and why has he made your all-time eleven? Well, he came in that season. He was a, obviously a youth team player, a prospect that people had heard rumours about. This great, fantastic centre back, ball playing centre back, and uh, he came in that that two thousand two thousand one season. We had a bit of an injury crisis. Because we'd, we'd bought, as I say, I think we've got John Scales who got maybe got injured. We'd, uh, we had a couple of older, you know, old experienced heads at the back there. And then we had a bit of an injury crisis and he came in. He was 19. He just played incredible. He was like, uh, people are going to think I've gone absolutely off my head, but he was like the reincarnation of kind of um, Maldini and <laughs> more. And, and like he, Blimey, that's some shout. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I might have got a bit over. He was just this colossus. He was a huge lad. He was like six four. Yeah, yeah. Built like the proverbial brick outhouse. Nothing got past him in the air. Um, uh, but he had pace because he was 19. He was speedy, mm-hmm. but he was great on the ball as well. I, I, if anyone thinks I have absolutely lost my, gone off my rocker and need, need section in, just have a look on YouTube at the goal he scored against South uh, Sunderland in that season. He wins the ball with an interception in, de- in defence, plays a quick one-two with, I forget who he plays the one-two with anyway, gets the ball back. And then from about the halfway line, he sort of strides, I think it's David Johnson, he plays a one-two with David Johnson, gets the ball back, strides through, and then absolutely blasts the ball past um, the goalkeeper, Tom Sorensen, I think it was at the time. And it's just an incredible goal. And he, was, he wasn't he was doing that every game, because obviously I think that was the only goal he scored that season. <laughs> but he was doing that sort of thing. He was winning the ball in, in defence and striding out with it and then playing great passes. Unfortunately, the second season when we got relegated, it all just seemed to suddenly fall apart. I don't know whether it was the pressure or whatever. And every game he started making a mistake that seemed to lead to a goal. But yeah, he was. But but yeah, that first season, he, I genuinely, this is how rubbish as a football pundit I would be. Uh, <laughs> in that first season, I predicted that he would be an England regular and possibly even England captain leading us to kind of Euro glory or World Cup glory in yeah. sort of five, six years time. And then, of course, you think he went to Newcastle for about five million I think if we'd have sold him the season before, he might have gone for ten million because he genuinely was superb that first season. Um, I mentioned my colleague Nick Ames earlier, who works who works with me at the Guardian, and he's a big Ipswich fan. And I shared uh, your team with him just to get his thoughts on it. And he has a question, Tony, quite straightforward: Why no Maurizio Tarico? Oh, Maurizio is nearly <laughs> in there. He's an absolute hero. Trouble is, as as uh, playing left back, I had to pick between him and one of my all time cult heroes, that is Herman Haridison. Tarico. Yeah, I'm gutted that Tariqo wasn't in there. Obviously, he scored an amazing goal. He scored against Manchester United, an amazing goal. Yeah, he it was very... Tell, tell Nick, I'm sorry, it was very... <laughs> but for some reason, I just have a huge amount of man love for Herman Horizon. I just think he was amazing. No, that's absolutely fair enough. Yeah, you just said Tariqo. Is he Argentinian fullback, wasn't he? He played yeah, for the club yeah. between 94 and 98. So in that in that not great mid-90s era. But yeah, I think I remember him quite well. He was yeah, a good player, wasn't he? Went to Spurs, yeah, I think. Yeah, Spurs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was he was wonderful. Yeah, he's he's a real cult hero at Ipswich as well, Tariqo. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, Tony, you've been absolutely brilliant. It's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. I've got one more question for you. It's a usual final question that I ask on this podcast. So, if you could go back in time and alter, stroke, change one moment from your time supporting Ipswich up to now, what would you choose? And it can be absolutely anything. It could be a match. It could be a transfer. It could be an incident. It could be a very personal moment supporting the club. You can change absolutely anything. What would you choose? Oh, my God. That's, that's a really good question. Oh, there's a couple of things that really stand out to me. One is, is like I, I sort of alluded to it earlier, that, that classic 80-81 season. For, for Sort of in those days, it is, it's probably odd for people to think back now, but the FA Cup was almost more important in those yeah. days than the league. Mm. Um, so losing to Manchester City in the semi-final, I remember Paul Power scored a free kick in extra time that put us out. So I'd possibly go back and try and alter that so that we could have got to the FA Cup final in 81. Or uh, for a bit of fun... Um, just in the sort of early Premier League kind of era, Premier Premiership era, just, I think it was just after the USA 94, um, Ipswich were bizarrely linked with um, Gabriel Batistuta. Wow. Obviously, the transfer never never came off. Whether the transfer was ever likely to happen in the first place, I don't know, or whether it was just weird, strange 
newspaper talk and rumours or whatever. But yeah, let's pick that. Let's say that Ipswich 94, just after USA 94, signed um, Gabriel Batistuta. That would have been amazing, but he still wouldn't have been as good as Marcus Stewart, would he? No, no, he might. No, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's Gabriel Batistuta. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. He, um, no, he was. Yeah, what, what he'd have been like playing in the same team as Steve Sedgley, you know, <laughs> <laughs> once we had at that sort of time. I don't, I don't know whether he'd have made all the difference and kept us up. Can you imagine Gabriel's in, face during the 9 0 at Old Trafford because yeah. he'd have played in that game, wouldn't he? He must have been horrified. Yeah, we, we, we might have had a shot on target. I, played, I don't know. We might have won a corner. Who knows? <laughs> True. But yeah, let's go back to then and let, let's say we signed Gabriel Bastuta. Yeah, brilliant answer. I would personally would have loved to see Gabriel Bastille play for Ipswich. That would have been amazing. Um, Tony Cowards, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.